You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. See here. All right, so this series that we've been in, this idea of money, power, power, and possessions, this idea of grasping, gripping, and giving. Remember, here's the idea. That when we aren't committed to turning our money into memories and our stuff into stories, when we allow these things that we have to become items we worship, things that we grip that end up gripping us, things that we're grasping for because we can't get enough, they end up grasping for us, and it ends up tearing us apart. And because we understand that money and possessions come with a sense of power, we end up, sometimes subconsciously, everybody say subconsciously, because I don't think we always mean to do it, sometimes we end up leveraging these things for the wrong kind of power. And so when we're grasping, we're reaching because we do not believe we have enough. There's a discontentment in our spirit. And then when we finally grasp and grab what it is we've been grasping for to fill whatever need we have, whatever wounds we carry, whatever it is, whatever, whatever the issue that's driving us, when we grasp, we, then grip, we grip it, we hold on to it because we live in this fear of scarcity. We believe that there's just not enough to go around. And our world operates under this premise, right? Like there's not enough oil, there's not enough food, there's not enough that. And so there's always this land grabbing and, and mineral grabbing. And we live in a society of just grabbing, grabbing. I should have said grabbing, but we live in a society of just grabbing what isn't ours and making it our own. And then we do whatever we have to do to protect our interests, even if it means violence. And we justify it. We justify it because we live with this fear of scarcity. We listen more to the voices and the talking heads and not to the one who came to us and told us that he's the God who owns land on a cattle of a thousand hills. This God of abundance. This God who says, I've come to give you life and life to the what? To the full. Not some half measure, but shaken down, pressed, running over. And so then the question comes, are we going to live like we believe this? And so this whole series is about trying to flesh out whether or not we really want to live like we believe this. And so we're taking a cue from my brother Dave who said to me and Aaron when we were discerning the series with the rest of the team that if we're going to talk about getting God's household in order, we may have to make sure each one of our households are in order. So we've looked at these three words these three, or should I say, these three sort of ideas that come to us from John Wesley. And we're taking a cue off of this man. He was an imperfect man. He was a social critic, a theologian, a pastor, an abolitionist in his day. And he preached this sermon on the use of money. And he said to the Christians, earn all you can. Everybody say, earn all you can. He said, save all you can. And give all you can. And what I appreciate about what he's saying is he's not trying to, he's trying to, he's trying to hold the tension. He's not trying to oversimplify or reduce this idea. Somehow that, that money is bad. Money's not bad. Money's not the root of all evil. What is? The love of money is the root of all evil. Material goods, possessions, these things are given to us by grace so that we can enjoy them. Scripture talks about that. So we can enjoy these things, but not without concern for neighbor. Remember, we talked about last week in the save all you can, that if you're trying to hold up a rainy day fund and you're not going to tap into your rainy day fund for somebody else's rainy day, come on now, then we don't understand the earn all you can, save all you can, what? Give all you can. 
So for Wesley and for the Christian, really, everything should boil down, not in terms of tithes and offerings, which is how a lot of times this is being taught, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the thrust of it all because God doesn't just leave his like, oh, 10%, this is yours, Lord, 90 is mine, right? Like that's just a sign and a symbol of our, provi- of our trust in the provision of God. Like we are to call to live lives of generosity because all is what? Grace, all is grace. And we looked way back when at that verse in Deuteronomy, it says, where Yahweh says to the people in Torah, in Deuteronomy, right there is there in between nomad and nation, where they're about to become a nation after all the wandering. And Yahweh says to them, look, yo, yo. And, he, and he does say, yo, he says, yo, you, you think, you don't, don't get to a point where you think that all you have and all you've accomplished is by your own might. I'm the one who gave you the might. Which is Yahweh saying from the jump, that it's all grace. The land, say it with me, grace. My money, my loved ones. We just sometimes think of grace having to do with our getting to go to heaven when we die. But it's not just our salvation, it's our liberation. Salvation can't just be talked about getting saved. It's talking about being liberated. Being set free to live into the purposes of God now, not later. Because Jesus is not Lord elect. Jesus is Lord now. And that's what we said. And every week when we come together at the Eucharist, that's what we proclaim. And so this series is trying to drill down into this for us. And so we talked about this idea of earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And if you have your notes up there from the, from the QR code, you'll see that, that we, and, and it's actually in the worship guide too, if you want to go to the worship guide. This part of the notes, I think, are in there um, on page 102. I don't know where... Um, sometimes this thing has so many pages, I can't... Yeah, page 7. And so we talked about how this earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can is going to guide us through this conversation for the next several, I mean several weeks, y'all. But then we're going to look at this idea that everything boils down, this tithing, this offering, all this into this idea of grace, but it's not just a grace that we receive. Listen, the work of God's grace is also to make us more gracious. And so everything we have gets boiled down to this, to this Galatians text that Wesley anchored this in. Galatians 4, 13 to 14. You were called the freedom to liberation, brothers and sisters. Only don't let this liberation be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, but serve each other through love. All the law has been fulfilled in a single statement. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. So we're going to drill this. I'm going to do the same. I told you guys on the, from the beginning, do the same introduction Every single week so that it gets inside of us. Because when inflation rises or recession comes, our tendency is to what? Grasp, grip, and measure the giving. And so we said these, these, these three statements, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can, are going to guide us the rest of the way, but there's going to be four signposts. You can see the signposts. Signpost number one. Let's read it together. Yahweh's desire for an economy that promotes neighborly love. We've looked at a lot of Torah, a lot of Hebrew scriptures, and we're going to do that again today, and we're going to keep going back to that and do some deep dives into the text. So this series really is a teaching series, and so I encourage you to stay in it. The second, the second signpost, the impact the gospel of God's kingdom has on us as a people saved by grace and sustained by grace. It's just a long-winded way of saying all is grace. Let's not forget it. And then number three, how the church and society has historically used money, possessions, and power in right ways 
Say it with me. And wrong ways. We cannot act like we don't stand on the shoulders of everybody who's gone before us. This church stands on the shoulders of those who came in 64 to launch this community of faith for the good of the city to the glory of God. But those people came because somebody came before them and came before them and came before them and came before them. We, never, we are never, never dislocated from our past. It's just a question of what kind of authority does it have in our life. Number four, how the church and society can right these wrongs she has committed in light of the first two views. So when we measure what the church has done right, we'll see that it aligns with the first two views. When we measure what the church has done wrong, we'll see it's because it goes contrary to the first two signposts, to the first two views. And what I wanted to do today was talk really briefly and then land in Isaiah 61, but talk really briefly about this idea of give all you can. Everybody say give all you can. So Wesley, Wesley had this third rule of give all you can, and this is what he said. He said, save all you can by cutting off every expense which serves only to indulge foolish desire, to gratify either the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, or the pride of life. Waste nothing. In other words, Wesley's idea of save all you can was a call to a lifestyle of simplicity, to learn how to live into contentment, to know when there is enough. And then he says, waste nothing on sin or folly, whether for yourself or your children. And then, he says, give all you can. Or in other words, give all you have to God. His idea was to trim the fat of our lives into a place of simplicity where we're not tethered to so many things that we think we own that they end up owning us so that we can let go of those things when other people do not have what we do. Does that make sense? Like, this isn't new for WCC. This, should, this isn't new for us. But it, it shouldn't be new for Christians, I don't think. Because all is grace. But how we leverage this should be discerned with Yahweh's wisdom. And so we spent all this time talking about the wisdom of God. So what I want to do today is look at one lesser understood aspects of Yahweh's wisdom. We talk, again, now we've talked about this for 13 years in different ways, so this, this, this may feel new, but it really isn't new. Um, it's a significant part of how we understand Yahweh's vision for the world. The Hebrew scriptures give us a glimpse into Yahweh's vision. The Christian scriptures show us what Yahweh looks like with skin on. But, but Jesus lives from the Bible that we're talking about right now. Does that make sense? The Bible that guided and shaped Jesus' ministry were, was the Hebrew Scriptures. And it was text like this. Text like Leviticus 25, 9-10. The Word of the Lord. Y'all, please receive this. This is, this is right in the heart of Torah. This is in the Law of Moses, which you may have heard called the Law of Moses, or the Old Testament, we call the Hebrew Scriptures. This is a command. And it's, I'm, I'm plucking two verses out of context, so please be sure to look at the context when you get a chance. Then have the trumpet blown on the tenth day of the seventh month. Have the trumpet blown throughout your land on the day of atonement. You will make the fiftieth year holy, proclaiming liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It will be a jubilee year. Everybody say a jubilee year. Come on. It will be a jubilee year for you. Each of you must return your family property and to your extended family. Now, what's this have to do with anything? 
the Torah would go on to talk about this season called Jubilee. It was this year-long command, and it was supposed to follow seven cycles of Sabbath years, meaning every 50 years. And it was a year-long of leveling the playing field economically, socially, and politically. Jubilee was a social reset. Everybody say social reset. So if you own land, if you earn land from Joe Bob, there was nobody named Joe Bob back then, and, and Joe Bob made some bad decisions, and you bought it, and you bought it, you know, fair, and, and it was all right, and you, you lived off that land, and this is important for an agrarian society. On the year of Jubilee, what were you supposed to do with that land? Give it back. If you had enslaved people, and enslaved others, and enslavement continued to carry on because you were disobeying the heart of Yahweh, the 50th year, what were you supposed to do? Let it go. What Jubilee shows is Yahweh's heart for economics and for politics and for social life. People who read in the Bible somehow that Yahweh sanctions enslavement doesn't know how Torah works. Jubilee was supposed to free it all. And all that had been taken was supposed to be restored. So if you land grabbed, you had to restore it back to the original owners. It was a leveling of the playing field, a social reset, a social reset built in a social hope that in Yahweh's society, everybody has an opportunity for human flourishing, where there's equality and equity, where there's a constant movement toward including all people so that no one is excluded. It's why the Torah said, hey, even foreigners need to be treated like they are your own. Are y'all with me? This is in the Bible. Always has been. Like, for real. And, and what's ironic is that, as far as we know, nobody ever celebrated Jubilee. Like, for 2,000 millennia, I could imagine the Hebrew elders are sitting around, you know, it's year 49, and they're like, oh, what y'all, yo, Jubilee's coming up. How you cows doing, bro? Man, they're doing good. How's that other acreage you got from Joe Bob going? They're doing well. We got to return all that. I mean, do we though? There's lots of speculation as to why Jubilee wasn't actually celebrated. One of the speculations is actually a little more theological. Some of the rabbis used to read this, let, this text when it says all the inhabitants of the land. They interpreted that until that all the 12 tribes were back together, that Jubilee wasn't to be celebrated. And that, that, that is a rabbinical interpretation of the text. But then there's the other part that, mm, this is complicated when you have money and power. Because what are you doing with power? You're letting it go. See, this idea of returning land kept a small number of people from holding a lot of land. See what I'm saying? Now, interesting fact, sort of a, an American religious irony, is on the Liberty Bell, if you've ever visited and seen the Liberty Bell, if you take a picture of the Liberty Bell, there's an inscription on the Liberty Bell. And it reads this, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. You know where that comes from? Leviticus 25, 9-10. You know what the irony is? is that a country that built itself on the backs of enslavement and land grabbing quoted a text from a, from a scripture that says release enslavement and land grabbing and put it on a bell proclaiming liberty. The irony of the American ideology. Why do I share that? 
Well, A, because it's history, and you probably aren't going to learn that in schools, especially now. B, we have to be sober-minded of how easy it is to twist Scripture or miss Scripture. This entire narrative is about a social reset. And it never happened. And it would be easy for us to say, well, it never happened. Well, which is why Jesus in Luke chapter 4 wanted to make sure everybody knew it was happening. Everybody say happening. You'll see that in a minute. But before we go there, I want to go to the text that Jesus actually read when he stepped into the synagogue in Nazareth and he opened the scroll of Isaiah, which was Isaiah 61. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or you scan through the Q code, QR code, pull this up, Isaiah 61. Now, before we get into this Isaiah 61 text, which is where we're going to live for quite a while, it is widely accepted among Hebrew scholars that Isaiah 61 in its time period is the voice of priests who upon returning from exile, so Israel had been in exile, temples been destroyed, and at this point in the Isaiah text, and not to get too much in the weeds, but it's oftentimes referred to as third Isaiah, and to this third book of Isaiah, this is technically the third book of Isaiah in this third book of Isaiah, it's written at a time where, where the Israelites are back from exile. So it's post-exile. It's after exile. And they're looking around at a devastated and destroyed community and a fragmented life together. Everything is just broken. And so scholars seem to believe that Isaiah 61 becomes the voice of the priests who were crying out in the spirit of jubilee. They're crying out for a social reset. They're crying out for a vision of hope for shalom. Shalom meaning human flourishing, meaning peace, meaning wellness, wholeness, well-being. And they were longing for a time when it is possible for all, especially in including themselves. And so in Isaiah 61, let's read. The Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release, liberty for captives, and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That language, the year of the Lord's favor, what's that reference to? Jubilee. It's a direct reference to Jubilee. That's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, whoever's saying it in Isaiah's voice, something new is happening where all of the marginalized and the powerless are going to be given an opportunity to have power, where all of the broken are going to be given an opportunity to see that there's beauty even for them, where the excluded will be included and the marginalized will be welcomed, where God's hospitality is actually going to be embodied and extended to all. Are you with me? We know this. And this sounds familiar to us because in Luke chapter 4, Luke tells us Jesus steps into the synagogue on his, in his hometown and he takes the scroll and he opens it to Isaiah 61 and Jesus literally says, the Lord God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and sent me to proclaim good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim release for captives and liberation for, for, for prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and then Jesus rolls up the scroll and drops it not literally he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant and he sits down and then they start arguing among themselves and then here's what Jesus says today come on today this scripture has been what anybody know fulfilled in your hearing it has begun 
Jesus is saying that the reign of God that has always been at work in the world that we have ignored and that we have hidden will no longer be ignored and no longer be hidden because God, God's own self has come and Jesus and the reign of God has broken into the world and everything is changing. You with me? Jesus is casting a new vision for humanity. This is a theology of church. Isaiah 61 is a theology of church. That's what it means to be the people of God. To proclaim good news to the poor. Now, sidebar, sidebar. Stay with me. This is a nerd point, but we've got to get the sidebar. A lot of times when this text has been preached, we say good news to the poor, that means spiritually poor. Okay, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is the word poor. Jesus has two words for poor he could have chose from in his own dialect and as it's translated. Tokos and penes. Penes and tokos. Those are the two words that would be translated poor in your Bible. Jesus doesn't choose penes, which is the working poor. Jesus uses the word tokos, which is the made poor. You with me? Why does that matter? Because Jesus isn't talking about a spiritual reality. He's talking about an oppressive, concrete, actual reality of all the people who have been pressed down. That's what tokos means. Those who have been pressed down, those who have their backs burdened with weight and just cannot be included. Those who have nothing to work with their hands. You with me? The penes is the working poor. These are the people who have something to work with with their hands. The tokos are the abject poor. These are the people who don't even have anything to put their hands on. These are not just, these are the overtaxed, overburdened hearers. We disembody the Bible way too much. This is the overtaxed, overburdened people who are listening to Jesus under the thumb of an oppressive government they did not invite to come into their world. That means Rome. And Jesus says, today Jubilee has happened. What do you think they're thinking? You think they're thinking, oh, we get to go to heaven when we die? They're not thinking about spiritual salvation. They're thinking about materiality. They're thinking about the concrete embodied material, the real. Thinking about far more than what we often think about when this text is often spoken. So Jesus says, hey, that that that, that time has come. There's a new kind of royal jubilee, and even though you all hadn't been celebrating it and honoring it and obeying it, I'm bringing it to you now. You just got to decide if you want to get in on it. But if you decide you want to get in on it, you got to live like it. You with me? We got to live like we're in on it. Like, if we believe there's good news to the poor, then we're going to have to be good news to the poor, right? Like, if we believe in the liberation of captives, then we're going to have to participate in God's work of liberating the captives. In other words, there's a withness. Does that sound familiar to y'all? A withness to this text. It's like what Paul said. We become co-laborers with God. Y'all know that? We are co-laborers with God. When Jesus says Jubilee has begun, Jesus is saying you can join God in on the work of Jubilee and find your own Jubilee in the middle of it all. Come on now. You with me? And this is a changing thing. This is more than just going to church. And this is more than just some version of discipleship that says, hey, let's just all be good and kind people. This is about a witness of conviction. That we don't believe Jesus is Lord elect. Jesus is Lord now. We don't believe God's going to provide one day. God is providing now. This is the the now of the now not yet that we often talk about about the kingdom of God reality. Y'all remember that? Where we say the kingdom of God has come now but not yet fully. 
and the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is broken in, which means things are literally changing. Subversion is happening. If you want to live, you got to die. If you want to, if you want to be first, you got to be last, like the subversion of the way the world works. People oftentimes call it the upside-down world, but it's not. It's actually the right side up. God meant the world to be this way, where the excluded are included and where there is a leveling of the playing field, where there are social resets in a society because Yahweh knows that we are going to, we are going to comply with the reign of sin and death and be prone toward the grasping and the gripping and that money and possessions are going to have a hold of us sometimes and that we're going to have society upon society upon society that is built on the principle of land grabbing. And then we're going to dress it up in languages called eminent domain. And Yahweh is saying, my people ought not participate in those things. Because my people are supposed to be a people of jubilee. A people who take me seriously enough to believe that what I've said is true and what I've said is happening. And then to be that kind of witness... To be that kind of people in the midst of their city. And not just that, Isaiah goes on and says this. He says, and, and we'll start, we'll pick up in verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God to comfort all who mourn. Now let me pause. Notice that Jesus doesn't talk about the vengeance. It's amazing how much vengeance Christians talk about today. But in Jesus' own sermon, he stops at the vengeance part. You know, you want to think why? Because vengeance is God's. God's got the vengeance taken care of. We need to join him in the jubilee, not the vengeance. You with me? Our job is to join him in the liberation, not in the condemnation. That's the whole thing in the text. Now, in Isaiah's world, they're looking for some vengeance. So let's, let's step out of Nazareth a few hundred years back and get to the context, okay? So forget Jesus ever said anything. Never thought you'd hear that in church, did you? Just listen to Isaiah as Isaiah gives it. Isaiah's living in this broken, scattered world in a post-exile world where nothing is the same and they've come back and they're longing for a social reset and a new kind of hope. And says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God to comfort all who mourn because, man, they were mourning. To provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify Himself. Now, I want to say something for a minute. Who do you think the they is in the text? Who are the they who will be called the oaks of righteousness in the text? If you read it slowly, who are they? The poor, the captive the marginalized, the broken, those that society says aren't good enough are going to be the exact ones that God joins in making the world right. Those that society said should be burned and blown away like chaff are going to be the ones, Isaiah says, are going to be the oaks of God. They will be called oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify Himself, Verse 4, they will rebuild, everybody say rebuild, the ancient ruins. They will restore, everybody say restore, formerly deserted places. They will repair, everybody say repair. They will repair ruined cities and the devastations on many generations past. Everybody say many generations past. Come on. 
Foreigners will stay and shepherd your sheep, and strangers will be your farmers and vine dressers. You'll be called the priests of the Lord. Hey, what are we, what are we called? Yeah, imagine that. We, we're actually called that too. Ministers of our God, they will say about you, you will feed on the wealth of nations and fatten yourself on their riches. Instead of shame, their portion will be double. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. They will possess a double portion in their land. Y'all, he cares about the stuff. And he's going to bless with the stuff. But when we live into a jubilee spirit, Instead of shame, their portion will be double. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. They will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and dishonesty. I will faithfully give them their wage and make with them an enduring covenant. Their offspring will be known among the peoples and their descendants among the peoples. Descendants. Everybody say descendants. Again, God cares about the generations that have come before, and God cares about the generations that are come, coming afterwards. All who see them will recognize that they are a people blessed by the Lord. I surely rejoice in the Lord. My heart is joyful because of my God, because he has clothed me with clothes of victory, wrapped me in a robe of righteousness like a bridegroom and a, princely, and a priestly crown, and like a bride adorned in jewelry. As the earth puts out its growth and as garden grows its seeds, so the Lord will grow righteousness and praise before all the nations. If you read this slowly, you will probably be able to see why we can live in this text for the remainder of the series. Because it is about the abundance of God, the provision of God, the vindication of God, the provision of God, and God's people joining God in those things of rebuilding, restoring and repairing. Everybody say rebuild. Come on. Restore. Repair. Those are the three words that we're going to unpack over the next little while to talk about what it is God is up to and invited us into as a community of people. It's not enough for us to just get our households right and disconnect our household from the household of God. I feel like Dave did a good job of helping us remember that last Sunday. It is only enough when the people of God recognize that we have been ushered into a place where Yahweh wants to manifest in and through us a social reset in a world. A way of being in the world that impacts how we live in it in such a way that we join God in the restoring and the rebuilding and the repairing of all the things that have been devastated, demeaned, and destroyed. And if a church isn't actively seeing that God is always calling us into that and then doing something with that, then that church is not a church of disciples. It's a church of churchgoers. Because being a disciple is not about being moral. It's not even about being good. It's not even about justice. Being a disciple is about faithfulness. And that moves us into these spaces. That doesn't allow us to disconnect from the generations past or the generations ahead. So then, what does that mean practically? That everything that I own, that I recognize as actually a gift of grace and owned by God, is to somehow be filtered through, a, through some sort of lens of, 
is this a way that I can participate in the repair and the rebuilding and the restoring of a broken society, of a broken neighbor, of a broken home, of a broken life, of a broken people? Y'all, we are called to be culture makers. You with me? That's who we are. You, you know this. That's why sometimes the sermons maybe make you feel decent or good. And sometimes the sermons make you feel convicted. Because it's a both and. Because what do you have? Begins with a J, ends with an S. Come on. E-S-U in the middle. Say it with me. And if you have Jesus, do you have all you need for real, for real? Do you have everything you need? What did Peter say? God has given us what? Everything we need for life and what? Godliness. We started out with that text. We bring it up every week. At some point, y'all can memorize it. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. So you can sit here and go, I don't know how I can participate in that. It's not up for you to discern. You don't have to discern the how. You just have to know the what. And the what is repair, rebuild, restore. The how, the Lord will lead. But it can start with you. And here's the truth. There's nothing in you too broken God can't repair. There's nothing in you too devastated God can't restore. And it is out of your brokenness and to your new repair. It is out of your devastation and into your new sense of restoration that Yahweh's going to bear witness to how he does the work of restoration and reparation. Does that make sense to you? The light shines through the cracks of your lives and bears witness to the God who brings together what has been broken. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.